Good morning. This is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and the SyncBook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day, a show that's willing to consider the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything for a community utilizing synchronicity as a way to make sense of a strange and beautiful universe. Today is 42, and I am 40 Wonderful. This is episode number 78, and this morning we will consider an authentic experience of the sacred. Yeah, happy birthday, Doug. You're not going to slide that by me. We, we will experience the sacred by visiting the monsters of the sacrilege. Hello, I'm William Morgan, and today on 42 Minutes, we're speaking with Victoria Nelson, essayist and fiction writer who teaches in the Godard College program in creative writing. She is the author of the acclaimed 2003 book, The Secret Life of Puppets. From You can find that from Harvard University Press. Yet today we'll explain we will explore the Gothic with a K from her 2012 publication of Gothica, which is so up-to-date, it is ridiculous. Thank you, Victoria, for joining us today. Oh, thanks, William. It's a treat to be on. <laughs> well, by some level, by coming on, you've kind of entered the story a little bit because we like to play with that space between the fictional realm and the real and see if there's any interplay. But I guess I have to begin with, um, are you aware that your namesake is the main character in a vampire d detective story known as the Blood Books? Oh, yes. In fact, you know, if you Google my name, the first thing you get is Vampire Hunter. And uh, I actually once really freaked out a librarian when I was going to pick up a pile of vampire books and passed over my card, and she flinched <laughs> <laughs> when she saw my name. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's one of those synchronous things, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> well, so could you recontextualize the word fan for our listeners? Oh, good one. Oh, yeah. It's fan is a, a very, very interesting word. It, 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 um, originally, it comes from the Latin fanaticus, uh, which comes from fanus, which means temple, and the fanatics of, of those days were people basically temple attendant and gradually the name came to signify someone who was a little too zealous in their uh, religious observances. Uh, it came back into our English language I think in the 17th century or something but it wasn't until the late 19th and early 20th century in America that the word the, the word fanatic, which was, you know, pretty much out there in the vocabulary, um, got shortened to fan, and that was, uh, first of all, to indicate uh, people who were overly zealous about sports, i.e. sports fans. And then it uh, expanded to include uh, people who were crazy about horror fiction and novels and, and then the movies and so on and so on and so on. So it does have originally this um, religious connotation and you know it's used you know if you're talking about somebody who's a big fan of a Boston Red Sox that's clearly uh, like a metaphor they're not out there worshiping at the altar but what I was trying to show in the book is that uh, fans in over the 20th century <clears throat> in the horror 
and uh, supernatural story and film realm uh, did make this interesting transition into back into a kind of religion. But so, and so that's the the part of your book that really is uh, it, it's a new tool we can utilize to try and understand this space between the story and what we know as reality. But you list actually three groups of people. Yeah. Uh, fans, a, if you will. Yeah, fans. It's sort of a continuum of fandom are the, you know, the the consumers of all of the enormous range of, you know, fictional material out there that gets dumped onto us. And that's, you know, kind of the ordinary way of really, you really, really, really like... Uh, Mad Men or, or Game of Thrones or something like that. The Walking Dead, and, to be appropriate. Walking Dead, definitely. Uh, and then uh, the second category, which is a little farther along the scale, are what I call performers. And these are the people who, for instance, uh, go to Comic-Con dressed up as their favorite um, superhero or they go to the Star Trek conventions or right. uh, the romance c conventions dressed up in a Regency gown. Uh, uh, that's one kind of performer. There's There are more serious performers such as the uh, old Trekkies who used to actually live their lives as Klingons, um, you know, dressed up in the <laughs> costumes and speaking the language and so on. And then there were these people who used to go to this, I don't know if they're still doing it, uh, this convention in the summertime in Sweden, the Orc Convention, where you could, you, know, you could sort of, it's like reenactors, basically. So people who take that fictional world seriously enough to just want to get into it, but then they also get out of it and go back to their daily lives. Then the third group, which I call the believers, and you know, and I emphasize it's not like this slippery slope from one category to another. The believers are really a very small segment, uh, but they are people like, for instance, um, and I actually didn't mention this in the book because I hadn't even heard about it when I finished writing the book, but there is a very small little religion called colonism that's uh, based on the Twilight series. Uh -huh. And the people, have you heard of this? No. No, what? <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, the, um, uh, the colonists uh, worship the Cullen family, that is Bella. The what? The <laughs> empire, and then Edward and all of his... Uh, all I feel like you're making stuff up for ratings or something. <laughs> Well, you know, it's easy to laugh at this. I actually don't because I I, I see a, a very serious impulse oh, underneath it. They they you know, each member of the family is called upon according to their their traits and I'm I'm blanking out on the exact ones and then well, what interests me is what you said about um Edward, the sparkling, like the, the sparkling of the vampire now, instead of, you know, burning to a crisp when they, when they get to the sunlight, they sparkle. And you made the connection to it being tantric in, in, in nature, that symbolism. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, a, 
it's a reference, and again, I, it's hard to say whether Stephanie Meyer is uh, uh, conscious of making these connections or not. I think. Well, she's Mormon, isn't she? She's intuitive. They don't have Mormons, as far as I know, don't talk about the subtle body, uh, which is what that kind of sparkling is across many religions refers to. It's the idea of the the halo body around the physical body that is your that is your connection to the eternal, the transcendental world. And it's a very sexual I mean, she the whole relationship of Edward and her, even the previews were very sexual with him breaking the the headboard and stuff of that nature. It's that's incredible. Oh, but, yeah. I, well, I just think of tantric. I think of the whole glow through religion as being like the organ energy kind of sexual energy. Yeah, I guess you could see it that way. I think um, I think uh, Stephanie Meyer is like a very modest writer, and even though you know, she, as I was saying in the book, she gets a lot of knocks from critics who kind of superficially say, oh, well, it's all about sexual abstinence and that's conservative politics. But uh, my answer to that is, did you actually read the fourth book? <laughs> because that's where all the sex happens. And, of course, it does happen <laughs> after they're married. Right. But nonetheless, you know, it's there. And, again, in, done in rather modest ways. You know, there are a lot of fade-outs and so on. There's nothing at all explicit about it. Uh, but whether you want to see that as sexual energy or just the, well, I don't know if just is the right word, but the kind of energy, uh, a sort of underlying energy that unites the universe, um, that image of the sparkling body definitely takes the vampires out of this old Protestant Christian devil um, association of evil creatures that are going to dissolve in the light of, you know, the sun uh, into a kind of different realm altogether. So maybe that's a good spot to say what is what is gothic and why, right. you know, what is gothic with a K? Or better yet, anything is there anything that is not gothic? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I must say I stretch the category pretty widely in my book, but just to make the definition, the Gothic, and it actually was called Gothic with a C, but the reason I added the K to it, the old-fashioned spelling, is because the original Gothic was actually the Middle Ages, and it was these characters in the 18th century who were kind of reacting against Enlightenment and rationalism and classicism and so on, who looked back very nostalgically to the Middle Ages and they started writing these medieval, these romances that were romance in the sense of adventure, not women's romance, uh, adventures, potboilers set back in quote-unquote gothic times. And so, um, so the genre, which was like really the original literary shock genre, sleazy, sexy, salacious, uh, priests and nuns, fornicating, all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, so it got the label gothic. And so starting in about mid to late 18th century, this, there was just this outpouring of these books that were wildly, wildly popular. And 
uh, is spread to the continent and to America, and uh, vampire stories being part of the whole gothic. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is kind of a late gothic uh, from that period. Does it does it always have to have supernatural? I mean, is there always got to be that tinge to it? Well. Now, it, I think you'd have to say it is primarily supernatural. Uh, at the beginning, uh, it's very interesting. All the male Gothic writers wrote uh, supernatural Gothic stories, and the female Gothic writers, and the Gothic was the first literary genre to have a, a very large number of female writers in it. Um, they tended not to have... They, there would be the hint of the supernatural, and then it would be explained in kind of rational terms uh, by the end of the right. story. But that makes me think of Scooby-Doo. It just makes me, when, when you were explaining that in the book, I imagine Scooby-Doo, and all of a sudden it struck me, is very gothic. And that formula that you just mentioned, because they show you the supernatural event, where there's a, some ghost that's taking over the carnival, whatever, and then at the end of it, it's always explained. It's always like... The, it, in, okay. in rational scientific terms. Now, w tell me, you know, Scooby-Doo is a kind of a hole in my own personal <laughs> thing, so tell me when when was Scooby-Doo on? Was that like in the 80s or so? Well, reruns were in the 80s. I think that it was probably late 70s because you would usually have guests like Batman and Davy Jones from the Monkees and stuff like that. I'll look it up, but I remember it from the 80s, yeah, because I was born in 78. So okay. Scooby-Doo for my generation is, and it has a basic formula, like where they, they're, they ride around in a mystery machine, this, this van. There's two boys, two girls, and a dog, very go-go-ish, 1969 to 1976. Okay. Well, that kind of fits because... Um, that was kind of the transition, those were kind of the transition decades in what I, I mean, the main focus of my book is not so much the history, but the fact that the, uh, the, the phenomenon of the mainstreaming of the supernatural in popular culture, which started in the 60s, uh, and then kind of grew and grew and grew and grew until the end of the century, uh, it became kind of unprecedented. So there would be, you know, if you think about those old Hollywood horror movies where um, you have a plot that's what I like to call, is this real or am I crazy? So the main character has uh, something supernatural happen to them and everyone else tells the main character they're crazy uh, and the main character starts thinking he or she is crazy, but by the end of the movie or the story, you find out that, no, it, there really was something supernatural happening, and, and the person is not crazy. So it was kind of this knife edge between rationalism and super, or uh, more properly, I think you'd say, materialism and supernaturalism, that then, just with Harry Potter and with all of the 90s deluge of more and more and more fantasy um, right. and of course the foundations were Tolkien and, and so on earlier and then uh, and and Star Wars and all of the all of the things that took the supernatural out of its ghetto in uh, 
see movie culture and, and pulp fiction into the and, and to be to being like an acceptable part of the mainstream. Um, I remember finding to my complete shock that Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, which were these mystery stories that I read when I was a kid, and they were still going strong, like, uh, God, I don't know if they're still using around now, but I discovered that the first werewolf in the Hardy Boys books was in 1979, and I just thought, my word, werewolves in the Hardy Boys, what's coming next? Like a, a real boundary had been breached there. And now, after the turn of the century, you see you have this whole, it's hard to name a TV series that doesn't have the supernatural in it. And, right. and a series like True Blood, uh, typically uh, vampires are now out in the open. They're part of mainstream culture. I mean, they're, they're like the disenfranchised minority that's trying to get its rights back and some of them are okay and some of them are not okay, but uh, they, they're part of daily life. And, and Alan Ball, who originated that series, said uh, something to the effect of he wanted to make the supernatural um, not some exotic, faraway fantasy thing, but a part of what he called deep nature. That is something that underlies and informs um, our daily life. Part of my interest in in your book and this whole subject is is the idea of mythologizing or religion building. And uh -huh. this is funny because it, in our materialistic culture, mythology is something that other cultures did, and that our scripture is actually a scientific or historical fact. Say, you know, so we believe in a historical. Uh, Biblical, in the biblical sense, you know, we, we don't do metaphor very well. Um, and so, what's so interesting to me, you know, I, I have to invoke Joseph Campbell because um, he said that a lot of the problems of modernity come out of the fact that we don't have a complete functioning mythology. And then he uh, listed four conditions for a complete mythology, a uh, mystical function, a cosmological function, a sociological function, and a pedagogical function. So the mythology acknowledges the mystery of life, it explains why there's a universe and where it's going, it defines who the people are, and then instructs the people how to live and the stages of life under this mythology. And so for me it seems like, you know, cosmology is coming from science, but we do have stories that are defining us and instructing us how to live and so and we, we even have religious or you know new religious forms coming through in fiction like the Celestine prophecy and stuff but I don't know if there's a difference between so this is the thing that we think in terms of there's religion and there's fiction but you know where these are blending is what's interesting and this is why we like Jeffrey Kripal and we love your book because it's all of a sudden it's like, is Stephanie Meyer creating the next religion? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think you can see that uh, along a, quite a wide number of fictional works, this phenomenon of these little small religions uh, growing out of not 
scriptures that have been accreting over hundreds of years, but the published works, published fiction works of a single author. Now, there are kind of roots and precedences for this in, in, in American culture, the, the, uh, the sort of radical reform, reformation uh, folks who came over from England and the continent to this country and founded all of these uh, uh, diverging sects ranging from the Baptists to the Shakers to the Quakers. Um, and then we began to have our own homegrown religions that became world religions, which include both the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, and also the Christian scientists, whose founders were uh, Joseph Smith and Mary Baker Eddy, and they wrote their own scripture, you know, they just sat down and wrote it. Um, and you can also make an argument that some of the scripture was informed by popular storytelling of the day. Um, uh, there's a wonderful book about uh, the founding of Mormonism called The Refiner's Fire by, um, God, I can't remember the guy's name, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, so there's already been this kind of bleeding between fiction and reality. Then, <clears throat> in the uh, 20th century, you get the rise of the science fiction religion, starting with L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology, right. which is now in religious studies textbooks counted as a world religion because of its international scope. I don't so know, man. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to think that both of those were fiction, though. Like... Like even the the I I know you're being very political about it and not saying that the the Book of Mormon is fiction, but it has a lot of characteristics of fiction, and it's the same thing with L. Ron Hubbard. By that time, Hubbard was just probably thinking, "Hey, I could do this again." Yeah, except I, you know, again, I'm not I'm not just being diplomatic. I think I'm really kind of respecting the yes. uh, the impulse of um, many, many people uh, who today, I mean, <clears throat> in mainstream culture in America has really been very rational and materialist and empirical, and religion has been ghettoized into the older traditional institutionalized religions uh, on one hand, and popular culture is this kind of dumping ground. <laughs> of all kinds of stuff, and what I see most clearly is a kind of repressed religious impulse finding expression in various forms of popular culture. And so, there, you'll get people, for instance, people who are tremendous fans of Lord of the Rings saying, I was looking for a narrative, and this is just what you were saying, Doug, about Joseph Campbell, I was looking for a narrative to explain the universe in my life, and I found that narrative in the Lord of the Rings. It's a container. It's it, these all of these stories that have these alternate worlds and some kind of ethical principles propounded uh, are extremely attracting attractive to people, and. What I see, I mean, my own kind of long-term view is that these, all of these different stories, Lord of the Rings, uh, Twilight, uh, Harry Potter, 
to a lesser extent maybe, um, and some of the others are being boiled up in this stew, and out of this stew will come a new um, a new world religion. And again, by world religion, I don't mean something apocalyptic that's going to conquer the world and, you know, <laughs> replace all other religions. I just mean a new religion. New religions are constantly being formed, kind of like volcanoes. They, they come up out of our collective, you know, souls when there's a need for religious renewal. And what I see is a lot of people are finding this energy and this excitement not in traditional religion, but in these stories that they see on the screen or that they read in books. And I would agree with that, especially in light of um, part of, okay, so Joseph Campbell would say that the hero embodies the myth, and so we want to identify with the hero, but then also ritual is an important part of mythology so that, you know, the adherent is in accord with the myth, but then the, the theater piece that you mention in your book in Marin County sounds so fascinating because it seems like uh, the important instructions of a mythology is initiation into sex and it, how to die. It's like those are the two big pieces. And so this is what's so fascinating to me is that so like the, the Potter books and Stephanie Meyer, it seems like there is this overemphasis on the sexual, but it, it, it seems like that's that's the important thing that kids need to learn, and if we're not getting it, you know, in in institutions, then it's got to come somewhere. It's through the fiction, through the storytelling. Um, yeah, I guess I guess you know my own personal perspective is I don't see the sex as mu as much in Stephanie Meyer as I see the dying. <laughs> You know, and this idea of dying into a very transcendental plane on earth, which is a very old religious uh, 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 idea, the idea of, of, of accessing your, your human, your, your divinity while you're still, you know, quote-unquote alive and on this earth. It's, it is part of, of Mormon theology. Um, Harry Potter, I don't know... I never don't think of that as being a sexy book somehow. And <laughs> but it does seem like there's this Lord kind of, of yearning and build-up. Where's the sex in Lord of the Rings, for God's sake? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not finding it. But but what but what what I do see is a worldview that includes something besides the material world of our five senses. In other words, there, there, wait, there is a baby almost always present lately, though. I mean, even in the the Twilight series, I mean, the end product is the baby, which is like this devil child, you know, prince of prince of darkness, end of days, devil's advocate, Constantine, astronaut's wife, Rosemary's baby, the last unicorn. Right, you have the tradition exactly right, but where Stephanie Meyer turns it totally on its head uh, is. Uh, the the little girl Renesmi is actually very beneficent. She's not going to be a, a bad seed, and that's you see that's the other big turn I see in the supernatural uh, in in pop culture, which is it came out of this very Protestant Christian tradition that uh, st you know starting the 17th century where everything 
no longer God did no, no longer intervene on earth. There were no miracles. There were no visions of Mary. Uh, if you, anything supernatural seemed to be happening, it was the work of the devil. And that's the reason why uh, supernatural stories in our culture, up until literally about ten years ago, have always been horror stories, have always been linked to the devil uh, and evil and scary bad things. Uh, but we are very, un we're totally unique in that way. I mean, other cultures, if you think of the Hindu uh, religion, where there there's all manner of ranges from good to evil and combinations thereof and elephant gods and you know, the black goddess Kali and so on and so on, we have had a very limited palette. So what I see happening is that I see the, uh, the people use the vocabulary and the materials they're given, and so the, the sort of religion builders in the pop culture world, of those fans who are seeking uh, a, some kind of transcendental experience, they take these formerly evil characters like vampires and werewolves, son of Satan, you know, uh, Hellboy, etc., etc., and they make them good. They make them good. And Bella is a good vampire. The Cohen family are marvels of social, you know, commitment and <laughs> enlightened liberal capitalism. Uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, and Renesmee, I mean, I compare Renesmee to um, oh Lord, what's the name? The uh, the oh yeah, the abomination, quote unquote, Alia in Frank Herbert's Dune. Remember the little baby who's oh yeah, oh I forgot about that creepy chick. Spice infused, <clears throat> um, uh, whatever, and has all of these um, you know paranormal powers. She is definitely creepy, but. Renesmee looks like a Benetton ad and, and acts like one too and and is presented as along with her mother, you know, they live in this paradise on earth. They're Bella Bella when she dies, she goes through a very Christ like experience. She endures uh, she dies giving well, first of all, she gives birth to a half human, half a supernatural creature, which is like Mary giving birth to Jesus. Right. And as she turns into a vampire, she undergoes three days of intense burning, which is a complete parallel to uh, Jesus. Easter. Harrowing of hell, uh, the three-day harrowing of hell, and is resurrected as a vampire. And if you read her descriptions of what how she experiences being a vampire, it's like being an angel or a god on earth. It's like suddenly she can see into the dust motes of the universe, she can see the molecules dancing, uh, she sees the incredible beauty of the other vampires, she sees her own beauty, she looks like a goddess, um, she doesn't have the urge to feed <laughs> on blood that the newbie vampires are supposed to have. She can leap, fly through the air, you know, she can uh, make auric shields around her family. 
And all, all of the things she does, she does for the good. And Renesmee has, shows every indication of following the same path. There's no sense whatever that Renesmee is an evil child. And so that's, that's what the new 21st century pop culture supernaturalism is all about. It's about the good supernatural, not the bad supernatural. And that's a huge change. That's about to happen again in Hellboy, because last movie, he got, he got, um, I can't remember, the fire chick pregnant. But it's the same, it's the same basic theme. You can see it as almost the same kid. Yeah, yeah, it's the, it's the child, and I'm sure Joseph Campbell would say, you know, as a good Jungian, he would say, the child, the baby is the potential, the possibility, uh, you know, what of what can happen in the future and it's not it's not like uh, uh, Damien taking over the presidency and <laughs> bombing, bombing the entire globe or something like that no it's, it's something totally different and it's just fascinating okay so with with metaphor so it's this dicey space where what you've described in the... I feel like I missed the boat on the on the Twilight books because I tried to read them and I just I <laughs> could not do it. You're not a girl, that's why. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to and I was really curious about the, the LDS and the Masonic stuff, but I just I couldn't do it. But um, <laughs> this, this space... It's okay, Doug. <laughs> it's all right. No, you're forgiven. <laughs> the space between what's a metaphor... And yes, yes. like, and seems like Jeffy Kripal does a pretty good job of, you know, uh, law of tra law of attraction, the secret, and these things. You know, authors of the impossible. What can we really manifest? Do we become divinity, like des like described, or is this a metaphor for an awakened spirituality? You know, what do we? Well, I my favorite quote is the uh, the writer Flannery O'Connor. Have you guys ever read Flannery O'Connor's great? realist writer, Southern Gothic writer. Yeah. Yeah, she she was a devout Roman Catholic. And so, you know, 20th century, uh, you know, there was so much rationalization of religion and, oh, it's a metaphor, oh, it's a, you know, it's it provides an ethical framework, you know, kind of not totally finessing a sort of supernatural, transcendent, extra-dimensional world that religion, uh, all religions, really uh, adhere to. And so somebody asked Flannery O'Connor about this, and she, you know, in terms of Christianity, and, and in particular, I think, um, you know, the crucifixion, and she said, well, I say... If it's metaphor, I say the hell with it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so there's a sense in which metaphor can kind of be a a slippery way out of really confronting. Do you think there are other dimensions uh, in the universe besides the ones we can perceive, or or don't you? And I think there's there's such a tremendous hunger for that, for that, um, uh, that territory outside our world that 
uh, people are, you know, using these stories as building blocks as a way to get themselves to a sense or an experience of that other place. Um, I'm also thinking, Doug, in terms of Lovecraft, and I don't know how far you guys are into Lovecraft, but there's this whole thing in Lovecraft about the space between the dimensions, and this has been the basis for a huge raft of little spiritual groups and also chaos magicians and other folk uh, who do, who take Lovecraft's um, gods, the great old ones, as real entities and, and invoke them and pray to them as a way of getting their minds out of, you know, the limits of the three-dimensional and into um, another place. Lovecraft himself was an avowed materialist, you know, uh, but there's this tension in his work between what he, what he says he was and what he actually, you know, wrote down on paper. And I think Lovecraft has pro was probably the most influential in creating this kind of quasar, not himself, but his works and their, you know, aftermath of uh, kind of creating this matrix where um, you can find ways, I mean, a lot of the Lovecraft groups do these things like play um, really cacophonous music and other things as a way of kind of breaking down your, you know, attachment to the real world and putting you into a completely uh, different dimension. The problem, though, is that Lovecraft's universe was an incredibly dark and depressing one, and these great old ones were not nice entities at really all. Care. And that's true of, uh, you know, as I was saying, of all kind of all the other things in the horror tradition, whether it's vampires or whatever. So the later movement now, the, the newer one, is to sort of open a door and let some sunlight in and see what kinds of um, new, you know, new creations, that fictional creations that, um, that a true fan, a believer fan, would say was not so much a fiction, but something you channeled from another dimension, let's put it that way. Most of these Lovecraft people say, well, Lovecraft uh, didn't realize what he was channeling, basically. He was in touch with this, uh, this other dimension, but he, he... So you don't think it was personal experience that Lovecraft was talking about? It was uh, no. Well, I mean, no. It would be hard to personally experience being, you know, reduced to a puddle of jelly on the front <laughs> porch after your encounter with, uh, you know, uh, the uh, demonic divine. But you know, when I started writing, I wrote a whole lot about Lovecraft in my first book, The Secret Life of Puppets. And when I started out, I took the traditional. 20th century psychological approach because Lovecraft's father died of tertiary syphilis when he was five years old. And if you have ever seen textbook photos of what the physical effects of tertiary syphilis look like, 
you immediately think, oh, right, that's the monsters. Whether he actually, whether that actually happened to his father or whether he saw it in his grandfather's medical textbooks or whatever. Um, oh, but see. as I got deeper into it, I, I, and so that might have been superficially, you know, the kind of inspiration for some of the writing and the fact that every, every single narrator in the Lovecraft canon, or almost every one of them, goes crazy as a result of this encounter with the uh, dimension of the Great Old Ones. Um, uh, but it goes beyond that. I was amazed at how much he influenced all the way down to Anton LaVey and so forth. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We have only about a minute and a half left. Um, it's interesting. In our world, it seems like Philip K. Dick is, is the bigger influence right now. There's something about his uh, alchemical brand of gnosis that it was really yeah. talking to people. Yes, yes, well, Dick also, though, in, in a way, he's, he's, and I think one reason that he's more prominent now is that his great uh, mystical experience of, uh, when was it, 3-4-74, if I got that right, March 4th, 1974, that he then spent the rest of his life trying to figure out, he ended up going back to late antiquity and Gnostic um, beliefs. Uh, but it, honestly, it's it's more of the same. The interesting thing about Dick is that he couches it in uh, kind of computer techno language. Uh, what this great, um, you know, Valis, you know, the uh, the uh, intelligence that governs the universe. Uh, but it honestly, it fits into the same general framework as. Myers Twilight um, and um, other other similar works. Okay, um, thank you so much for coming on. It was a lot of fun. Um, you've been listening to Forty Two Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio on the SyncBook.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, or to check out past shows, please subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. And please uh, be sure and check out our website at the SyncBook dot com slash 42 minutes. Thank you and have a wonderful Tuesday.